Yeah, I saw her do a murder. Now, two murders. Trust you not to go simple on me and do something stupid. I mean, really stupid. Now, why should I trust you? For the money. The money? Yeah. That's right, smart of money. In Russia, they make only 50 cents a day. Welcome back to the Jackass Critics Podcast. And this is the second part of the podcast where we will dive into the main event. Yeah, that's right. Before it was the appetizers, and now we're in the... Uh as they would say. That's right. For our main event today, we are diving into the film known as Blood Simple. Yes. So, Blood Simple, Coen Brothers' first film. It begins, the car's driving in a, a rainy night in Texas. Ray and Abby are the two characters talking about Abby's unhappy marriage. Ray re- lets out that he likes Abby. I put like in quotes because that's exactly how he puts it. And the two decide it's time for them to break off her marriage and run away from her bar-owning husband, Marty. The complication is that Ray works for Marty, so the three definitely know each other, right? Very much so, yeah. And while this little affair is happening, part of the reason she's breaking it off with Marty is that he seems to be a little bit overbearing, overprotective, nobody likes him, and he is having her followed by a private investigator named Lauren Visor. So he's furious when Visor brings over photos that night of the two of them. How would you put it, Matt? Having a loving hug at a hotel? <laughs> a few times I hear, yes. Yeah, so... Over and over. I'd wake up <laughs> or sleep for a little bit and do again. <laughs> that was a good impression. I like Thank that. Thank you. Yeah, that was just off the cuff, too. Yeah. So the more Marty thinks about these photos, the more furious he gets, and... He asks the private investigator to do a little dirty work for him. In other words... He he gets the idea that maybe this creepy guy would be up for some less than legal activity. I think even the creepy guy threw it out there that he could possibly do this if he really wanted to. But instead, the P.I. double-crosses him and kills Marty using his wife's gun. Dun-dun-dun! Yeah. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Complication sets in when Ray is the one who discovers the body first, and he, of course, believes that Abby pulled the trigger because her gun is on the floor. He has to go through a messy cleanup that may not be a quote-unquote finished job. Yeah, Yeah, that was not textbook right there. (laughs) Yeah, and there's a scene, of course, where he takes his body into the middle of nowhere, Texas, in the middle of the night, and has to work to dispose of it, which is not exactly a, a clean job. I mean, they set it up as being in the middle of nowhere, and then the daylight comes up, and there's a house like 200 yards away. I mean, what was up with that? I realized those, I mean, was the implication he knew those people or something? Sorry to go off on a tangent, but I'm like, the house is right right there. What's going on? Yeah, I guess it's dark. People are sleeping. It's Texas, I guess. Yeah, it's It's... just normal to see people. Maybe he's burying a a time capsule. He's going to open it up in 20 years and remember. He he had a deer. He's giving it a proper burial. Yeah. I'm going to bury a cassette out here in the farmland. I want to remember what it is 20 years from now. (laughs) Make a movie out of it. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, sorry to... And so the the movie doesn't end there. Visor starts to track down both Ray and Abby as he thinks they're getting a little bit too close to the truth. And, of course, the film ends with a tense cat-and-mouse shootout between Visor and Abby. That would be our synopsis of the film. And if we didn't say so before, which I probably should have said before I ran through the synopsis, uh, we're going to be discussing teasers and spoilers, and you should probably watch the film before we discuss it. Yep, yep. As to not the have usual, anything uh, ruined. Disclaimers apply, I guess. Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I guess I kind of screwed up by not putting that earlier, but... Whatever, what it's... I mean, we've said that before, all of them, and at this mm-hmm. point, if somebody's going to blabber on for an hour, as we're likely to do, about a movie, then they're probably going to talk about the plot points of the Indeed. movie. Indeed. You know, yeah. So, Matt, the uh, first yeah. question I have, I'll start with a statement. Both of yeah. us have seen this movie before, but it's been a while. Five years yeah. for me, and how many years for you? I was in college, so that was 12, 13 years ago, most likely. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you're revealing your age. That's that's key. <laughs> 
I want to know what you remember from the movie before you watched it, right? Because I, I think I asked yeah. you to write down a couple things that you remember about the movie, just certain things that stuck out to you about the movie that you remembered 12 years later. It was a, a great idea, and I the more I thought about it, the happier I was that you asked me to do that, and maybe we'll even make that a common thing in the future. For movies we've seen. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the most uh, memorable characters, I guess, for me, surprisingly enough, the actual... Um, bartender at the bar was the most memorable character for me, which Maurice. we didn't even really mention in the in the synopsis, just because he's kind of a bit player. So, player is the key term too, right? <laughs> yeah, and dude's got some skills. Yeah, and we'll talk about it more. But I think the only reason I remembered him was he's kind of the only likable or genuine, I guess, character in the whole movie. And maybe that's what just made him... I guess he's just a contrast. He's the light and the darkness compared to everybody else. Not that he's particularly, you know, overly preachy or anything like that. Right. He's just kind of more of a straight-up guy than everybody else who's devious or dumb and yeah, what an, have you. that's an interesting point because everyone in the movie is doing something wrong. Yeah. Okay? Uh, Marty is, you know, having his wife followed and then he pulls in the orders to have her killed. And then you look at the... You look at the wife, she's running around on her husband. You have the other guy who's sort of skipping out on his job and, you know, doing someone's wife on the side, Doing of somebody's <laughs> wife, and, yeah. The private I mean, investigator just... is, you know, another <sighs> uh, another story altogether, right? Yeah. So, I, and the private investigator was the other character, and just his, you know, M. Emmett Walsh, his, yeah. uh, his style is certainly memorable in any movie. I mean, you if I say M. Emmett Walsh, a lot of people are going to say, who? But then if you show him a picture or yeah. say a movie, they're like, oh, that guy, you know, yeah. he's definitely uh, quite a character actor and pretty awesome. Yeah. See a congressman from Texas? Who is that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Really, I think as far as the plot goes, I had a lot of it intermingled with uh, Red Rock West. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that. Nick Cage movie of awesome. I remember the name. I never saw the movie. There's actually a lot of similarities. Um, in that one, Nick Cage rolls into a dusty town in the middle of nowhere, you know, somewhere down south. I don't know if it's Texas or not, but um, there's a bar owner who's creepy and the wife that wants to get out of town, so she kind of tricks Nick Cage into doing some bad stuff, and they escape together with the bartender owner's money, um, and they send a... Uh, uh, private investigator after him, so I kind of intermingled a lot of the ideas between the two movies to the point that uh, J.T. Walsh, the guy from like uh, Sling Blade, Sling Few Blade. Good okay. Men, yeah. he was the guy in, in Few Good Men that was kind of memorable. Okay. Um, so I kind of thought maybe he was the bartender, bar owner in uh, Blood Simple, but I knew he wasn't, but I knew it was somebody like that. Like, I didn't remember... I didn't even remember Frances McDormand was in the movie, honestly. Mm -hmm. Just her character's not particularly likable, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and then I remembered kind of the big ending, um, and then there was kind of some cool camera work when, uh, spoiler, M. Emmett Walsh is kind of stuck, we won't go in too deep, um, in a situation uh, by Frances McDormand, and he's trying to get his way out, and he kind of tries to shoot his way out, and he does <laughs> successfully at the end, and that was actually a cool use of dark and light and the camera I thought was pretty neat. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I just remembered, you know, the kind of the three-way triangle with the love thing going on, and and I thought that was kind of interesting. I remembered, and I, as I was reflecting before I watched, it seems to be a common thing in a lot of the Coen Brothers movies, just with weird, unusual three-person love triangles and stuff like that. Even in Big Lebowski, there's you know weird three-person love mm -hmm. triangles and stuff going on. So those were most of my memories. Just a little bit about the character. I right. remembered the plot, but didn't know what was Red Rock West and what was Blood Simple, uh, and some of the, you know, just hints of early camera work, but that was about it. How about yourself? What did you remember? Yeah, I remembered a couple things. I remember shoes, in particular the bartender's shoes, but I remembered them wrong. Okay. I remembered them being cowboy boots, and I remember how the camera followed them as he's, like, sort of doing this little stutter step over the bar. Yeah, exactly, I remember when him, he hops over. Yeah. yeah, I remember him stepping onto the bar, thinking that was kind of awkward, and then the camera sort of followed his shoes on there, as that was a little bit of his personality. Right. Uh, yeah, I remember it being cowboy boots, but it ended up being Converse All-Stars, which I guess right. adds a little bit more personality, right? And, Certainly more fitting for Maurice now that after you watch the movie, yeah. Yeah, and Maurice is an interesting character, like you were saying before, right? If everybody in the character, or everyone in the movie is 
pretty much evil and doing something wrong. But Maurice is the guy who's coming to the bar every day, yep. working as late as he needs to, getting people drinks. I mean, he's the one who's doing everything right, and he's got a good personality on top of that. Yeah, the owner sense. just pretty much talks shit to him all the time. I mean, Ray, our protagonist, if there is one, yeah. um, is definitely taking advantage of Maurice's kindness. Uh and Maurice lets him know he's kind of a dick for it, but, yep. I mean, he's still, you know, taking advantage of it and just, you know, getting spoon-fed crap and dealing with it. So Maurice right. is kind of the working man, the guy that you got to respect. And I remember another vision, or not another vision, but another visual I remember was the guy in the road crawling. Yeah. Right? Just that image of the person who, who wasn't dead yet, what yeah. everybody thought he was. I, I remember that that vision of him sort of crawling across the dark pavement. And not remembering exactly the circumstances that led him to get there. But I remember yeah. that, right? Just that, that shot. And then I do remember the ending, and I remember there being a slight twist at the end. And I think it was, and I think I remember it revolving around who she thought was after her. Right. I, huh. I, you know, I couldn't remember the names of everyone, but I remember that that was kind of the twist at the end. And also not being completely satisfied with that I think hmm. in a way but we can talk yeah. about that a little bit later too sure, right so some background on the movie as we said before this is the Coen Brothers first film it was done in 1983 84 I don't have that written down but I think it was somewhere around that time yeah something right I mean this is 84 but yeah. right and the Coen Brothers had to raise their own money for this film it wasn't like they you know graduated from NYU one of them Joel graduated from NYU but it wasn't like they immediately got a contract from some studio to make a film and they had this script for Blood Symbol that everybody was rolling over. No. Right. They talked to their buddy Sam Raimi. Yep. Because yep. he put out another movie earlier. Matt, I'm sure you know what movie that is. Would that be Evil Dead? It would be Evil Dead. Yes. And what Sam Raimi did is he, I think he cut like five minutes, ten minutes worth of footage that he had shot before he got any funding. Yeah. And he took a projector around with him to people's homes, possible investors, showed it to them, yep, yep. and got some money for it, right? And, yeah. You know, he was able to say, like, okay, this is kind of what the movie's going to look like. You want to pitch in any amount of money, I'm going to give you this much back when we make yeah, a profit. I know he, they was going to dentists and all sorts of crazy, you know, stuff just to try to get money from anybody that was possible, yeah. Right. So the Coen brothers, hearing this, did essentially the same thing, and I think they raised close to a million dollars. I know the the movie probably cost in the end 1.5, but eventually I know they got a distributor, so I think that covered some of the costs. But right. they eventually raised that amount of money after making a essentially a two-minute trailer that looked yeah. very similar to the rest of the movie. Right. And the movie was shot with mostly first-timers across the board, not just actors, but crew members as well. Uh, one of the exceptions, M. Emmett Walsh, was essentially a seasoned veteran. He'd been in a number of movies, and they wrote the role specifically with him in mind. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, they had seen him in a movie with Dustin Hoffman uh, where he was essentially a, a guy in a jail cell tormenting Dustin Hoffman to some degree. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they essentially liked his personality, like the type of actor he was, and they had him in mind for this. I guess, you know, you think of M. Emmett Walsh, as you were saying before, not too many people know who he is. They weren't shooting for the moon here. They weren't saying we need Burt Reynolds for this role, right. at least, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then Walsh is not the Burt Reynolds at 84, but... Right. And this is Francis McDormand's first movie. The yeah. role was originally offered to a young Holly Hunter, mm. but she was doing a play at the time. She had a roommate named Francis McDormand, and she told her that she should go check this out. Yeah. And Would one of the Coensby brothers be married to Holly Hunter right now if the <laughs> dice switched off a... Uh... Who knows? They yeah. got married very shortly after this movie was made. Oh, okay. Made. I was going to ask if you knew that. I didn't know. Yeah. I, I, I remember also reading that they were sleeping on Sam Raimi's, or in Sam Raimi's apartment. Uh, some of them sleeping on the floor, because obviously there's not a whole lot of room in a New York apartment. Right. And they were already married at the time, but I don't think they had a distributor for the movie wow. yet. Yeah. So that was a whirlwind romance. I guess an, so, yeah. An odd one, I would say, but one yeah. nonetheless. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> And there's another guy who actually had done a couple films before who was uh, a grip, uh, who, who actually lived in the area. I think he lived in Austin. He hadn't worked for a while, though. He had become a survivalist. Oh, but, really? Yeah. He didn't have too much to uh, 
to do those days. So I think they managed to convince him to help him out with their, their yeah. movie. But he was probably just raiding the craft services cart to go back underground or something and you know Right. Right. Yeah. Shows up. But Yeah, the, when your grizzled veterans include one actor and one grip on, you know, sixty people, that's yeah. that's not a lot of uh seasoned veterans there in the Yeah, so you can imagine when this thing kicks off and there's a lot of people who don't know necessarily how it works. You know, this is definitely a recipe for disaster, but the Coens really knew what they were doing. They had everything well planned out. Like Hitchcock, yeah. they were storyboarding everything. They worked with uh, the director of photography, Barry Sonnenfeld, who's gone on to do a number of things. Yeah, I was then. surprised to see his name, too. Yeah, that was interesting. And they had worked with him a number of times after that as well. He was, uh, along with uh, Roger Deakins, he was one of their two major uh, cinematographers. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, and uh, they had a definite vision of what they wanted. Sonnenfeld was uh, was very good. I thought he he pulled off their vision quite well. He was um, it's it's a color movie, but you can tell that they wanted this noir look to it, right? Oh, they wanted yeah. the darks. They wanted these saturated looks. So he used a lot of natural light, even at night, like neon lights, the uh, what was it, the mosquito zapper and right. the flame coming from the incinerator. And just some really beautiful imagery that that tied into the well uh, the film really well. Uh, that's taking a big bite out of an apple for your first time. I mean, just as a total amateur, you know, moron, point and click camera guy. I mean, I I know for certain that the nighttime photography is just I mean so difficult to get right, and mm-hmm. it's not like they had the money or the experience to know what they were getting into and the money to deal with, you know, learning on the job. It had to be right pretty quick and it had to be right you know the first take uh, that's pretty uh, impressive that they pulled mm-hmm. it off and it is I mean the movie is it's mostly it's like they started instead of with light they started with darkness and then painted you know little spots of light into it and stuff right. as opposed to the other way around right it's, right yeah there's so many scenes that, uh, most of the memorable scenes are at night too yeah. and they really just stick out right and, and like yep. you were saying the scene where uh M. Emmett Walsh, Lauren Visor is the character's name, where his hand is essentially stuck, uh, I guess, by a piece of glass in a window pane. And he's yeah, she stabs him with the buck knife or whatever, and then... Uh, that's what it was, right? Yeah. And she has to essentially, or he has to essentially shoot his way through the wall with whatever five bullets he has remaining. Yeah. So it makes it easier for him to punch a hole in the wall. <laughs> and that then was, the, that was really the beams cool, of light yeah. coming, coming through, you know, it's just a... Gruesome moment, but a beautiful image nonetheless. That was really cool. Yeah, the shafts of light kind of bursting through with each bullet from, because mm-hmm. one apartment that Emmett is stuck in is fully illuminated, and then Francis is kind of in hovering the in a corner. Yeah, in a dark apartment next door. So the kind of the the bullets shoot these shafts of light through to the uh, darkened apartment, and it, it's really cool. Yeah, and a great tense moment too. And yeah, very sure, for sure. And, and the moment where Marty is talking to Ray too about. What do they do next? You know, your wife yeah. is leaving you. It's really dark. You you see the lights of the bars that uh, that Marty owns and everything. Uh, Ray's face is half lit, half in darkness. And on Blu-ray, which is what I got recently, uh, a nice copy on Blu-ray. Yeah, it just looks so beautiful. It looks like yeah. it could be freshly done. You know, it's. I'm sure uh, that was real nice. And yeah. yeah, I mean, you shoot on film as they were lucky enough to do, uh, you do get that uh, clarity that can be brushed up 20 years later and, and still uh, present a nice image even on uh, 20, 2011, you know. Right, right. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the, the common Cohen themes, as I like to call them, because this is the first movie. Yeah. And, of course, if you see this movie as the first Cohen movie, as, as many had done, they didn't necessarily recognize the the Cohenish themes, right? But right. as we've seen a number of their movies, uh, I don't think I've seen all of them. I think there's still a, a few holes in my Cohen library, but yeah. most of them I would say I've seen. You can definitely see some themes that are presenting themselves, right? Absolutely right, sure. Uh, one of them being that open spaces can be very scary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think this is something they explore in this movie as well as Fargo, definitely No Country for Old Men, and I would say even some degree to their next film, Raising Arizona. I can see where you're going with that. Yeah, that that is a common theme, and I mean, they maximized, I mean, the film kind of oozes Texas. It's definitely tied into Mm -hmm. the Texas mentality, and the bars just, 
this uh, shack. Uh, it's a big shack, but it's a shack kind of in the middle of nowhere with a big old dusty parking lot that people roll up into. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, even the space inside the bar it was obviously designed intentionally to be just kind of a massive open space with, you know, some tables and stuff like that. And right. it seems to sprawl on and on. I mean, there's all these doors going back to another room that leads to another room that goes back into the office and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a lot of room both inside, more than expected. And even uh, when the Francis McDormand's character, um, Abby, mm-hmm. moves into an apartment, it's like got 30-foot ceilings, and it's, uh, I mean, just this massive studio kind of apartment and stuff that Yeah. I, I don't think I would even be comfortable living in there. I mean, it's Especially just so since, bizarre. Yeah, they didn't have any blinds, and that eventually became their trap, too, yeah. right? Yeah, it's yeah. I I know what you mean. You move into a place like that. There's no blinds. These big open windows to the city. Yeah, I wouldn't feel very comfortable living. In I that. mean, it's really picturesque. <laughs> it's the kind of kind of place that you hope your friend gets so you can go hang out there. It's like, well, this is really cool. But then you're like, I'm glad I don't live there. That place is creepy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, even, there is that sense of dread there, and, and certainly, I mean, you think about the open vastness of the the Fargo, you know, mm-hmm. setting and the burying of the, the loot in, in the middle of a snow field in the middle of nowhere. How are you going to find it again? It doesn't yeah. matter. It's, yeah. it's open. Yeah. And no country for old men, too. I think they're also exploring the Southwest, maybe a little bit of Texas, maybe New Mexico. And, you know, there are these big, huge open spaces. And, you know, you can run forever, but there's this one guy who's just hounding you, and he's going yeah. to find you. And, you know, even in these big open spaces, you can't hide behind much. Yeah, and there's no space that's big enough, really, to hide you, I guess. It, right. It seems counterintuitive, but it is a fact. Yeah. And I think in some of their, their scariest movies or some of their thrillers, I think that's that's a, a theme that they hit on most, right? That's when they use the open spaces the most. Yeah. And something like Hudsucker Proxy, right? They're in the city. You don't have to worry about those open spaces. It's funny. You know? Yeah, yeah. Everything's a little bit compressed, but once yeah, things even, start to stretch yeah, out. Even the mailroom or whatever in the Hudsucker Proxy was intentionally busy and... I mean, there was stuff flying everywhere and stuff. Right. So, I mean, it was right. just using that to the extreme as well. You know, one extreme or the other, basically. Right. Yeah. And so last week, or in the last episode, we talked about Raymond Chandler as being a, a hard-boiled detective genre yes. writer, right? Yes. And his name is also synonymous with film noir because a lot of his stories were used as uh, to make movies at the time, like uh, The Big Sleep, for example, and The Long yep. Goodbye, which is the movie yeah. we talked about last time. Yeah, he produced a lot of uh, content, and a lot of it was pretty good, so it was a good springboard for a lot of films, you know. Right, right. So James M. Kane, uh, that's a name that I always tie to Coen Brothers films. Mm-hmm. And even when I was doing a lot of reading, it doesn't seem like that's an original idea on my part. It seems like a lot of people are doing that as well. <laughs> okay. Uh, he's He did a bit of writing back in the 40s and 50s, I believe, some of the movies that his writing turned into, Double Indemnity, uh-huh. Postman Always Rings Twice, Mildred Pierce, right? Hmm. Those are some of the big ones. So his right. work is definitely synonymous with these hard-boiled crime novels. But it doesn't really take the perspective of a detective, right? There's no Philip Marlowe, there's no Sam Spade. Okay, yeah. But they actually take a look at the people who are committing the crimes, and these people are just average, everyday citizens, right? Yeah. Yep. And the movie that I think of the most in comparison to Coen Brothers films is The Postman Always Rings Twice. Have you seen this movie? I have not, Thomas. Fill me in. Yeah, so it's it's very simple. A guy rolls into a diner, essentially, right? I think that's mm-hmm. as far as his bus fare will get him, somewhere in California, right off the highway. It's a very lonely diner, and a man runs it with his young, attractive Lana Turner wife. Nice. Uh, or the husband runs it with his Lana Turner wife. Right. And eventually the man falls in love with the wife, and they figure out a way to off the husband. But, of course, there's always something that happens that goes wrong, and, you know, you know where the story's going, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. And this story is very close to that, right? I was going to say, it sounds similar to what we just watched, more or less, right? You know, in right. terms of, it doesn't really necessarily matter what specifically goes wrong. The point is that something goes wrong that the characters have to react to. Right. They find themselves in an absurd situation that they didn't necessarily see, you know, from the get-go or what have you. Right, right. I mean, you get these simple people coming together to try to create some sort of extraordinary plan to 
murder someone. They think they come up with, you know, uh, a great plan, a foolproof plan. Nobody's yeah. ever going to figure it out. It's straight all the way down the middle. Yeah. And something always goes wrong. Somebody ends up doing something. And that even is talked about by Lauren Weiser in the movie. He's saying that, you know, talking to Marty, who's the guy who eventually... It's a twist, right? Marty's the husband, and he's the one that ends up uh, wanting to commit the murder, as opposed right. to the the wife and the guy. The, right? the scandalous, yeah, the adulterers, I guess you would say. Right, you know? right. But as he's talking to Visor, the guy who's going to do his dirty work for him, he says, don't go getting all simple on me, because that's how yeah. you screw up a plan, right? <laughs> and uh, it, it's interesting, because that's what happens in these novels, is that somebody makes a misstep along the way, they say the wrong thing, they get trapped into saying something in front of a lawyer that they can't get out of later, Right. and the truth always comes back to haunt them, and the consequences are even worse than they would have imagined. Hmm. So you're thinking they're drawing some inspiration from Kane. Uh, yeah, again, James that, Kane. Yeah, Mr. Kane there. And the man who wasn't there, I don't know if you saw that movie with Billy Bob Thornton, they're black and white. Yes, oh yeah, I love it. Yeah, that one is directly out of James M. Cain. I mean, I wouldn't say directly, as in they took his story, but, you know, they were essentially channeling his spirit for that movie, yeah. I would say. I mean, you're watching that, and then you watch The Postman Always Rings Twice, and you can see just direct yeah. translation, direct references, and, you know, they were following the script. Not the script, but they were following his uh, his notebook, I guess you could say. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. James M. Cain, and yeah, a number of yeah. yeah, a number of Hitchcock references, I would say too. Right. <clears throat> so well, I mean, who doesn't love the Hitchcock? And I'm sure the Coens are are fans as well, uh, especially oh, yeah. when making a movie that is in a similar genre. You know. Yeah, definitely. So in the original that was screened, there's an intro. I didn't have this intro, unfortunately, when I was watching on my copy. But yeah, um, I guess the intro had a quote from the Dashiell Hammett novel, uh, Red Harvest, where the term blood simple came from, which oh, is essentially okay. what Visor was explaining, right? Right, right, yeah. But the next quote was about Hitchcock talking about how hard it is to really kill a person, right? It's <laughs> how hard it is to really take the life out of that person. It's not as easy as just pulling a trigger all the time, right? Which is what happens in this movie. Yeah, yeah, a lot of slow deaths being delivered, sure. Right, and... The movie that that references the most is Hitchcock's film, uh, Torn Curtain, which, ah, yes. if you've ever seen that, there's this really long, maybe like four or five minute sequence with yeah. Paul Newman wrestling Paul with, Newman. Yeah. yeah, yeah, rushing, uh, wrestling with, uh, I think it was a communist or German or, or something like this, right? Yeah, he was trying to escape, yeah, the red curtain, yeah. Yeah, uh, it was a very torturous, silent scene, a lot of biting, grunting, and you know, not a whole lot else. It was a very, very tense scene, and uh, I think, you know, that you can definitely get some hints of that in the, I would say, the burial scene, right? And yeah. It, it's right. just this long, long drawn out process that it takes him to, to get rid of, uh, to get rid of Ray. Yeah. Uh, not Ray, but sorry, get rid of uh, Marty. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't. <clears throat> To think of another burial scene, we got, was it Goodfellas or Casino? Whichever Goodfellas, one where they buried yeah. Pesci, yeah. And that was much more visceral in terms of the beating and whatnot, but mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot more wincing in our blood simple just due to the length. I mean, it was just uncomfortable uh, more than anything else uh, to... I mean, we identify... Ray's, Ray's a moron, I know, our, our protagonist, and... I didn't particularly like him just because, you know, he's so simple, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and it's just, he's just unlikable for being played to this level and everything. But still at some point, I mean, he's not an unlikable guy and he's just kind of in a bad situation at one point. And it's just a little uncomfortable to watch it un, uncurl before our eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And can't he help thinks, but feel a little sorry for him. And he thinks he's doing the right thing by protecting his girl, which... You know, if he just walks away from that thing, <laughs> you know, takes the gun with him, he'll yeah. be all right. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe not. They'll trace the bullet or whatnot. But, you know, it, what it comes down to is she didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. They, can, they could probably try, trace it back to Visor somehow. Right. But he's essentially cleaning up the wrong guy's dirty work. Uh, yeah. And then uh, the other 
reference that I saw that yeah, I yeah. think was mentioned somewhere else was Psycho. Uh, do you know what reference this is, Matt? I think it has something to do with a cleanup from reading some notes I'm reading at the moment. There you go. Yes, yes. Yeah, so the big cleanup scene, uh, very reminiscent of when... Uh, cleaning up Mother's Mess. Yeah, cleaning up Mother's Mess. Yeah. Good boy, Norman. Cleaning yeah. up after Mom, as always. Yeah, I I definitely can see that. And, I mean, why not, again, yeah, focus on some of the uncomfortable, just unpleasantries of, of murdering and disposing of someone. You know, it's, yeah. it's just uh, so unkempt and not polite and tidy to, to do this. And there's a lot yeah. of untidy things that go along with it, you know. Yeah, it's such a sloppy job, too, you know, taking off your shirt to, to scoop up some mess and, you know, <laughs> rinsing it off in a sink. When yeah, where's my windbreaker? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and just even not necessarily in the content of the movies, but I do think the Coens, I mean, obviously they go with projects that interest them and are willing to basically touch on any genre, comedy or the thriller yeah. Um, I mean, they've touched on surreal in terms of Barton Fink, I guess. That mm-hmm. I mean, that's not really a traditional movie by most most standards, most measuring sticks. Uh, the westerns. Um, you know, Hitchcock certainly did a great variety. I mean, the dude was making movies for 50 years, so he was touching on a little bit of everything. Um, so I think there's a lot of similarities and and then working with similar people over and over again as well. Obviously. Oh yeah, yeah. Once you get somebody you you know you can trust and work with uh, in terms of writing or uh, you know camera work and what have you, producing and acting, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, they uh, over the years, right? They've used Frances McDormand a number of times. Obviously, she's married to one of them, but right. they used uh, M. Emmett Walsh. They used him again in uh, No Country for Old Men. He was the guy standing behind the counter with the original coin flip scene. Oh, cool. Yeah, so it was interesting because, and, and that's sort of a good transition, I guess, because I was going to talk about Visor a little bit, him being the oh, first yeah. Cohen villain, and it was interesting seeing him in that role, being on the flip side of uh, Antoine Sugar, <laughs> you know, as he's yeah. Yeah. Just sort of sitting there kind of dumb and, you know, why you got to flip the coin, partner? You know? <laughs> right. But, yeah, so he's, he's our first villain. Yeah. Does he have a lot of characteristics that you see in later Cohen villains or is he just sort of a one shot? Well, that's a good question. I mean, they played up the, the hamminess of him to the point that I I almost think he stands alone in terms of their I guess he's almost he's not totally absurdist, but he's almost absurdist in just his mannerisms that's mm-hmm. what really burns it in your brain, but I mean the closest thing just looking over the Cohens Maybe the John Goodman character in the Barton Fink or something like that. Yeah, just, I thought you were going to go there. Yeah, yeah, somebody that's kind of, I mean, Goodman was more boisterous than anything else, but just <laughs> whatever the character says, bring it 200%, you know, from what it says in the paper. Um, I think they kind of both did that to some degree. I mean, you can't, I imagine what you read on the paper for M. Uh, Emmett Walsh's character for the Visser Um and since they wrote it for him, they kind of knew what they wanted to get out of him, I guess. Right. And they right. extracted it from him. Probably the same thing for Goodman. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think in some ways he is. Yeah. He he does have some characteristics, I guess you could say, of a, a normal Cohen villain. Yeah. In that, at least for the first part of the film, he seems to be somewhat in control of what he's doing. Yeah. And... He, he does seem like he knows what he's doing, you know. And... Right. He's toying with Marty, and and maybe even I mean they have a contemptuous relationship. I would say back and forth between each other that they need each other, but they hate each other. Well, oh. everyone hates Marty. Anyone who has a relationship with him, so this he's just true. sort of added to the pile. I would say. I, I mean, is, was Marty really that bad? Not to totally don't go on a, a side thing here, but I mean, we see pictures of Marty with at the pool with his <laughs> adulterous wife. I mean, yeah, he's kind of a jerk and kind of really into himself and everything, but Jesus. I mean, Let me say this. Yeah. Even even Maurice doesn't like Marty. Yeah, that's just true. And Maurice <laughs> puts up a lot of shit. Yeah. Anyways, back to Visser uh, as being a, yeah, a villain. So, uh, so in some respects, yes, I think he is. I mean, when he goes into the house, when he's essentially acting as a sniper, you get this feeling that he's the, you know, the scary villain that's impossible to stop. Because that's what I think of when I think of a 
a Coen Brothers villain, you think of almost like a supernatural being, but still a human. Yeah. Right. He, like Antoine Sugar, right? He's, yeah. There's some, certainly some instances from, yeah, most specifically Antoine right. Sugar. Yeah. I mean, you're watching him. He's just a normal guy with a goofy haircut, but you know, he's just blowing through people left and right. Like he's impossible to stop. Right. Like he's made of steel or something like this. Yeah. Right? He, he's almost like a supernatural villain, even in raising Arizona. Leonard Smalls, the biker man, he seems like he, you know, rides down from heavens above or yeah, from heavens above, like coming in with ride of the Valkyries or something like that. Right. He's, he's coming down from somewhere and he seems impossible to stop until a grenade blows off. Right. All these people, all these villains seem like there's something otherworldly about them. You mentioned John Goodman, right? He's supposed to be the devil in Barton Fink. Right. Right. Isn't that what they're trying to tell you? Yeah. Yeah. So in that respect, I think he, he falls a little bit short. And, you know, it's it's their first movie, so they haven't established their their shtick yet. But yeah. in other respects, he, he definitely has these character traits, right? He He's a little bit funny. He he jokes around in awkward situations about oh, yeah. the yeah. adulterous wife, as you said. Right. So he has these, these goofy mannerisms about him, which which is definitely very Cohen, right? They have these, these sort of comic points in the movie, like, the fish are still on the desk and the camera lets you know that the fish have been on the desk for like a week now, even though nobody mentions it. Yep. Right. But it's like the audience can smell those fish even no seven doubt, days right? later, you know? Yeah. You know, and it's, I mean, it's, we're not going to be the first persons ever in the world. I think to say there's some similarities between blood simple and no country for old men. Mm-hmm. And I'd go so far as to say, if I had to write a, a paragraph synopsis of the Ray character, Mm-hmm. And James Brolin's character from No Country for Old Men. Yeah, Llewellyn, I mean, right? I think they would be the same character. I mean, I. I yeah, they're imagine, not so distant cousins, right? <laughs> yeah, when they were casting, uh, looked it up, Lewin Moss, Lewin Moss, Llewellyn for, Moss. Uh, yeah. No Country Old Men. I mean, didn't they say we want Ray, but you know, but different. Ten years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but with he's a mustache. A, a relatively simple guy that finds himself in a situation that he probably knows better, mm-hmm. but goes ahead anyways, and then all sorts of kooky shit starts to happen, but really just, you know, the southern, polite, relatively easygoing guy that, you know, before we joined him, his story was he was going to work, you know, the rest of his life doing mm-hmm. whatever kind of menial job he was doing before, and that's how his life was most likely going to end up. But, you know, this weird thing happens and then, you know, it just goes off in this other angle. I mean, between the villain characters and the hero characters, I mean, it seems to be very similar in terms of Mm -hmm. what's going on there. Yeah, that's kind of a a classic, I would say, James Cain almost. uh, Dynamic uh, between the two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you talk about how he he takes this turn, right, he he grabs a bag of money that isn't his. And for a while he's safe, then he goes back to the scene and then leaves a little bit more behind. Yeah. But it's really just grabbing that bag of money in the first place that Yeah. And that if really Ray never went back forever. to the bar for his money that, you know, he felt he was justifiably owed. Right, right. Would have probably lived a relatively decent life and you know, maybe the the lady would have ended up in the pokey for getting framed for killing her husband, but yeah, they yeah. probably would have been better for him anyways, as it turns out, you know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, even that plot twist of what you know really puts them down onto the deep dark path is one and the same. You know, just can't help themselves, but you know, taking that one more peek, you know, as the case right. may be. And I find that whole scene where he discovers the body up until essentially the end, right, or maybe ten minutes before the end of the movie, yeah, to be very interesting because. Right, it takes you up to that twist. And and what is the twist in the movie? Well, she thinks that her husband's after her when it turns out to be Visser or Visor, whatever his name is, Lauren. Yeah. You know, she shoots the guy. She never sees him, but yep. she knows the guy's after him. She knows where he is. You know, there's this whole 10-minute sequence where they, they hear each other. Cat and mouse, yeah, exactly. The whole cat and mouse game. She ends up shooting and hitting him through the door because she knows he's coming. And says something about him being Marty, and he starts laughing. Yeah, with and this, this cackle, basically, yeah. Right, and you realize that throughout this whole movie, she doesn't know that her husband's dead. Yeah, even, I mean, 
she's she's a she's a bad you know character, a bad person or whatever. But she is genuinely innocent of killing her husband and Ray, who she's running away with, um, who knows for a fact that Marty's dead. Mostly speaks in riddles, which is kind of annoying. You know, whenever Abby tries to get serious, like, what are you talking about? Why are you saying that there's a problem with Marty, et cetera, et cetera? You know, Ray just mm-hmm. speaks in riddles or, you know, avoids the question because I guess he just doesn't really want to say, you know, because that'll be real or whatever. Yeah. Um, so even though Abby is not a redeemable character, in my opinion, um, she is genuinely innocent of realizing the full extent of what's happened. You know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the whole thing stems too, right? And I think this is probably intentional on the Cohen's part of the trust breaking down. The trust yeah. breaks down as soon as they start essentially treating on Marty. Right, she yeah. can't be trusted because she may do it again. Marty plants that seed in Ray's head. Yeah. So then, throughout this whole process, Ray, their communication breaks down. I mean, communication breaks down in this whole movie, and that's essentially how everything gets rolling in a way, because Ray thinks Abby murdered Marty, and okay. never gets the story straight on that. Never, he never just, really asks. Yeah, for clarification. Right. And Abby doesn't even know that Marty's dead the entire time. She's just walking around wondering, you know, why is Ray acting like an idiot? Yeah. And then Visser, Visor, Lauren Visor, thinks that they're on to him when, when neither one fact, of them has any clue. Yeah, Any they, clue what's going on, yeah. Right. One of them doesn't know that the guy's dead. One of them thinks that the other one did it, and they don't even know who this guy is. That's the sort. That's the sort of comedy that I imagine the Coen Brothers were like clapping in excitement together, like, "Oh, isn't this so fun?" Yeah. I mean, they just love. I my impression is they love you know the weird you know coincidences of life that are like that. Uh, right. They think that oh. that's probably the most hilarious thing ever. Yeah, maybe the second most hilarious thing ever is we'll talk about uh, the Blu-ray, right? So there yeah. really isn't a whole lot extra on the Blu-ray. It's a really clean look. So I will say that it's probably better than any dvd copy you can right get out so there if, now. i mean if you have a, a, a blu-ray this is you know certainly the version to get i watched the dvd myself just because we wanted to kind of get a comparison and a contrast and you know i probably right. wish i watched the blu-ray as well <laughs> not that dvd's bad but but the only thing that they really have is an extra and i was really disappointed i was hoping to see featurettes and all sorts of goofy stuff and yeah. I, I know that there was uh editing that was done after the fact like they took out uh I'm a Believer, I think, was the song that was playing on the jukebox and changed uh, it with Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. Of course. Yeah, they did a yeah. bunch of little things like that. So I was hoping that there were two two versions on the disc, sure, but there right. weren't. What there was was a commentary track. Okay. Okay. So Sounds it's got to be good. That's exciting. Commentary track with the Coen Brothers? That's pretty rare. It's rare mm-hmm. as a hen tooth. No, it, it's a commentary track with a fake person named Kenneth Loring from a fake place called the Forever Young Film Preservation. Uh, I mean, it's this whole running joke with the Coen brothers where they created this fake preservation society where they have an intro with this actor who's, you know, smoking a pipe and reading a book talking about, you know, why this film is important and everything. And then they have this stuffy British guy who sounds like a, a museum guide on the commentary track. Yeah. And some of the things that he goes through are how this film was uh, shot using ultra ultrasound. <laughs> I mean, just some weird sense of humor those those guys have. Right, right. He says yeah. that the film has been enhanced uh, by taking out boring parts and adding other things in. That's a direct quote. All right, yeah. That's talks... a good step in the right direction, obviously, yeah. Right, right. And during the title sequence, he talks about how uh, in order to shoot that, they had to reverse the film, shoot it in reverse, and film it upside down in order to get the lights to come out right as the person's running them by the car. All right, yeah, that makes total sense. I'm surprised they didn't have to suspend the car in the air, flip it upside down. And then, I, so. That may have been part of his explanation, but I just yeah. grew tired of it. And then yeah. the, the dog that you see where you know Marty is in the area, Marty's yeah. German Shepherd, right. that's a mechanical dog. I did not know that. that was yeah, a, obviously, of course. It, they it really seems... made the most of their million-dollar budget, apparently. Right, and, yeah. you know, it was 1982, 83, whatever we said it was earlier. The fly that shows up on Marty's face when he's talking to the private investigator, it's a digital <laughs> I noticed, fly. I noticed that. It was yeah. very conspicuous. Even on my, you know, low-def DVD version, it was visible, and I'm like, damn, look at that fly. How did he keep yeah. his concentration? <laughs> it must have looked yeah. awesome in Blu-ray. Oh, yeah. yeah. Could, could you tell it was digital or not? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a digital fly for sure. You can see <laughs> you know, the shadows. Yeah. That, uh, I don't know if it was the same guy, but I think before my um, 
there's an extra on my Big Lebowski DVD, and I think he does oh, a bet. quick intro as well. That's I bet. I mean, it's not my sense of humor, but <clears throat> I mean, these the Coen brothers definitely have you know weird, unusual tastes of humor, and it's the yeah. little things in life that kind of make bring them glee. It seems to be. Yeah, it seems like this was created. I, I think it was on a DVD earlier too, like maybe a okay. 2002 version. So I, I'm just trying to think back to 2002. They started doing these commentary tracks few years before that and they're probably thinking that this commentary track is the biggest joke in the world they right if you hear them in interviews when they're talking about their movie i mean they would laugh at the depth that we're talking about in this podcast because you know they're doing this all for fun like you said they've got this weird sense of humor right they think oh yeah you found that depth in this movie oh yeah well that's good for you all right yeah exactly they're not what you would expect them to be talking about like yeah we had strong references here from this and this and you know you watch this japanese movie by ozu and there's a scene and it really resonated with us here you don't get that feeling that you just feel like they're these kind of geeky losers who make extraordinary films correct i mean i don't expect them to pull like a quentin tarantino and do a tarantino fast or cohen fast of Here's, you know, a weekend of movies that are all inspiring to us, you know, and just have a a wide array of movies or something like that. I'm sure they love movies and are into movies, obviously, but I I don't think that they're one to (laughs) tell you the movies that they've watched or anything along those lines. You know, you get the artists that don't want to tell you anything, and that's why, you know, there doesn't seem to be, as far as I'm aware, any real legitimate commentary tracks or really any extras on any of their movies, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, it doesn't even seem like it's the artist who doesn't want to tell you something. It seems like it's the dude from The Big Lebowski who's just yeah. like, whatever, man, you know, whatever just you made see a movie. In it, that's what you see in it, yeah. Sure, sure, we just had to shoot like that because we had rain that, you know, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and I respect that, uh, you know, it obviously works for them, and you know, the end results can't be argued with. And, I mean, you can't blame fans for wanting more access and more information and wanting to soak it up. I mean, not yeah. every movie is going to touch with you, and when there is something there, you want to, you know, eat that crap up. But that doesn't seem like it's going to happen in our lifetime, you know. Kubrick and Cohen's, uh, I don't think we're going to be getting any commentary tracks. Most likely, <laughs> definitely not from Kubrick, but yeah, yeah, you never know. All right, Matt, I think we're at the point where we start asking questions. Yes, Thomas. Who do you party with? I think I showed my hand a little early. I mean, Maurice is the only non-asshole. He's mm-hmm. shown some ability to score some chicks. I mean, he'd, he'd known the one chick at the bar for five minutes, but they already worked up the repertoire to lie for each other and cover for each other. That was pretty yeah. good. Uh, Maurice, I, I mean, I would take Maurice's, you know, seconds or whatever, you know, his, his uh, not-so-good chicks. His sloppies? No. Yeah, well, <laughs> hopefully there's enough the to go around. Yeah. yeah. Okay, How about yourself, Tom? I mean, Maurice is the obvious pick. Are you going to go off the tracks? You know, I, I knew Maurice would be the popular pick. He is. And I was trying to think of anyone else. And for the reasons that we stated earlier, like these guys just made horrible decisions from the get-go, and Maurice is the only decent person in the movie. That's yeah. who you party with, right? That is. I mean, Ray's a moron and unlikable. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not. I'm not a huge Francis McDormand's a hottie person. I mean, mm. I'm sure there's some people yeah, who find her super I'm hot, and she with was. You there. She was. I mean, cute. '80s cute is how I would describe Francis McDormand in this movie. I mean, mm-hmm. she I, had the '80s hair. Can't do much yeah. about that. It was a tough sell making her uh, the hot dame of the movie, but I'm willing to go with it. But yeah, I mean, I mean, Visser it, it definitely is entertaining to watch and memorable, but. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't leave a checkbook open with Visser around. He's a, he's yeah, no a kidding. snake of opportunity, I would say. Yeah, after seeing that movie and seeing him turn on his employer, I don't think I'd want to be in his house drinking his booze. <laughs> you drink first, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. where do you think this ranks in the Coen Brothers pantheon? Well, you know, I, as I was, we were wrapping up here. I was reflecting. You know, we haven't even really said you know overall feelings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a good movie. And yeah. I enjoyed watching it for a second time, which a lot of movies I wouldn't. Uh, it's above average. I mean, it's an intelligent movie. Um, it's acted fairly well, but, I mean, a lot of people are just so unlikable. Achoo! Oh, man, excuse me. Good zoom tight. That was unexpected. Um, just the, It's hard to take it against the movie or, or out on the movie, the fact that the characters are unlikable, but they are unlikable. Uh, Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in the lower half of, of their movies, just because really? their quality is so good. And, and I'd, 
I'd put it in the lower end of the upper half of their movies, I would say. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think there was something I liked about it. I think it was just a, a nice, tight, solid film. It's fun thinking about this being their first film, too, how how well it was done, how polished it is. I mean, there's some goofy parts in there. There's some throwbacks to thrillers and horror movies that don't necessarily seem to be proper for the film. But, you know, yeah. on, on that level, I think it, it all works. And all right. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot. We'll, we'll both do this. We'll go through the Coen Brothers movies and think, which one, what we like more. And we'll just stick with the most popular ones. Because uh-huh. right after this was Crime Wave that they were involved with with Raimi a little bit. We won't count that And that's that a Raimi film, yeah. Yeah. I, I, and unfortunately, I own a copy of that on VHS, but we won't talk about that. Yeah. Um, so Raising Arizona, I mean. I, I like would watch, Raising Arizona a lot. Yeah, that, I, would, I would watch that certainly again before I watch Blood Simple. Absolutely. Miller's Crossing I thought was pretty good as well. I, I would, think that's one of their best movies. Yeah. I'm not a huge Barton Fink fan, so I'd probably watch Blood Simple again. I'd probably watch... Oh, that's a tough one. I've only seen Barton Fink once, and I remember yeah. being interested in it, but not getting that payoff at the end that I really wanted to. Yeah, it was it was a bit too much, a bit too obscure for my taste. So we'll, probably, give, we'll give Blood Simple one for that. Yeah. Hudsucker Proxy, I certainly like a lot more. That was pretty I do too. I, I'm amazed to see how many people don't like the Hudsucker Proxy. Really? But I really like that movie I mean, that's lot. some zany comedy right there. And uh, Jennifer Jason Lee does... Some great work in that flick. I, I really yeah. enjoy the heck out I mean, of she's, that. She's totally channeling a, uh, a Catherine Hepburn or a uh, Rosalind Russell in that movie. A, just a great job by her. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Big Le- uh, Fargo was their next one. I think that's both a winner for both of us. No, actually, I'm going to... <laughs> yeah. Stop. The- I- hang on. My press has just stopped. Yeah. They- okay, yeah. now we're ready to go. Uh, I'm glad me, we went down be- this avenue, Tom. Let me be on record as saying I am not a big fan of Fargo. I've Can only you just seen give me a, a breakdown only, of. I only saw it once. All right. This is back in. Uh, uh, remember, we were taking summer classes together at. at oh yeah, uh, Michigan so ninety-seven ish. Yeah, I, I right. watched it then, and I think maybe the context wasn't as good for me it, because people were comparing it to Pulp Fiction at the time, which it definitely was not. But oh, yeah, yeah. I remember walking away being a little disappointed with it. Very interesting. All right. Long time ago, so I may yeah. need to see it again. But I remember oh. just. But after I saw it, I hated all the acclaim that it got because huh, I just did not agree with it. Yeah. All right. I'm going to get uh, pounded for that if anyone wants to post on Yeah, this. hopefully yeah. people have tuned out by now because that's going to that's gonna light business up right there. That's going to affect it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was almost ready to just bounce past that one. I'm glad. Yeah. So I don't know if you even watched I'm Lebowski. Uh, Lebowski, of course, hundreds yeah. of times. Yeah. Yeah. And then Oh Brother. I think we both like that one probably more. I would say they're close. Honestly, okay. yeah, right. I put them neck and neck. Yeah. yeah, man who wasn't there. I mean, I love that movie. Mm, it's yeah. personally one of my favorites. It's like a cleaner version of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we didn't talk about it. Or we skipped over it, but um, just in the common themes, there's just the weird love triangles. I mean, it's not even a traditional. It's not like a a, a talk show, you know, a Springer love triangle. But there's just the weird love triangles, and they got that going on and. The Man Who Wasn't There, mm-hmm. Blood Simple, um, uh, even True Grit with the the daughter and then the bounty hunter and the dad is dead. But, I mean, there's just these weird three people and, you know, everybody brings something to the table and it affects everybody else. But anyways, right. um, Intolerable Cruelty, not a huge fan of that one at all. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of that one. I okay. don't know if I put it above Blood Simple or not. Again, yeah. they're probably pretty close. Um I liked it probably more than most people, but I understand why some people don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I I like Clooney, and I even like Catherine Zeta-Jones in, in that mm-hmm. flick. Um, I mean, I think they do what they're supposed to do really well, but I mean, just the script and plot wasn't up to my. Gotcha. And I realize this is total fan baloney that we're going through here, comparing movie by movie. But uh, I, I'm yeah. enjoying the heck out of myself, so we're gonna keep going. Keep at it. Uh, Lady Killers. Uh, I'm curious what you think about Lady Killers. I did not see it. That's one of the two okay. ones I didn't see. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd be curious. I can't tell you to watch it because I really didn't I find it to so my taste. I heard so bad. I don't even want to watch it. Yeah, but I would be really sake. super curious what you thought about it. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it's going to take me a while. Plus, they, they took a movie that was much better and they essentially did a horrible job with it from what I hear. So. Oh, from the original, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no Country, so... That was pretty good. That's flick. probably my favorite Coen Brothers film. Oh, nice. It's probably No Country, then Miller's Crossing, and 
Big Lebowski, like those three right around those there. Are, those, the three, the Pantheon? Yeah, yeah. Burn After Reading, that's a very enjoyable flick. I think I would take this movie over that. I oh, watched really? Burn Man. After Reading recently. I think I would take Blood Simple over it. That may be my favorite of their comedy ones, which I would, well, Big Lebowski's comedic as there well. Were, there were a lot of enjoyable moments in Burn After Reading. The Brad Pitt character was just phenomenal. Gosh, and even the yeah. Clooney character in that was, was really uh, J.T. Simmons, really well I mean, he kind of bookends it at the beginning of the end. And even uh, <laughs> Hammer or whatever from that bad show, uh, yeah. the bad sitcom. Anyways, uh, Serious Man, we both absolutely hated. Thank you. I'm glad uh, you hated it as well. I mean... I, I hope we get some feedback from that. I, now I hope somebody's listening and tries yeah, to tell me exactly. that. Exactly. I got my fist up ready to defend that one. Yeah, and if somebody responds that we're not Jewish enough to understand it, I guess they win because I can't really argue that, I guess. Yeah, maybe. But that's the only defense I've actually heard of a simple man that I can palate. Uh, and that true grit, I mean, that was a pretty good flick, so... I didn't see that. That That's my All second right. one I didn't see. All right, so sorry to do the interlude, but yeah, I guess, I mean, it seemed to me that it was still probably in the lower half, Tom. Yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but it's, but it's the tough. problem is they're, you know, the 80th percentile movie is still a very good movie. Yeah. You know, pretty much the top 80% of their movies, I'd stop and watch, you know, if I was flipping through. Yeah, like and that's the thing TV. about the Coen brothers these days. They're just... They're just directors that any time they, they announce they're making a movie, it's going to draw some sort of interest because they're just so wacky and zany. You don't know what direction they're going to take, and it's going to be unlike anyone else's film. If they decide to make a kid's film next, I wouldn't even blink. I would not blink. A 3D kid's <laughs> film. All right? that, that sounds like something they would do. Yeah. You know? The unexpected. The unexpected. Right. As soon as you're well, adapting 50s black and white British lady killers and, uh, I mean, what else can you, you're gonna tap any every mind you can whatever's interesting you to you and obviously they can make a movie for ten million dollars and have it make fifty million dollars so right. who wouldn't give them the money to make it? At one point it was rumored they were making a silent movie with Brad Pitt and it was going to be some war movie and uh, <laughs> part of me is glad that didn't get made but yeah. part of me kind of wishes it did you know. <laughs> <sighs> Brad Pitt I don't know that's a curious casting decision but anyways yeah, yeah uh, where were we? So that I, that's our ranking in the Pantheon. Yeah, I think that wraps up our episode, too, I would say. All right. I mean, we certainly... So overall, I mean, would you recommend somebody to watch Blood Simple? Just the oh, common yeah. man on the street? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think it's I think it's a good movie to watch. It's, it's a strong thriller. Uh, it even holds up now, even with some of the bad 80s haircuts and whatnot. <laughs> but, you know, there's just some elements that in that movie that, that age well. You yeah. Know, they're classic yeah, elements. Yeah. It's aged well. I mean, it's almost 30 years now, which is pretty wild, and that yeah. definitely makes me feel old. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a good movie. Um, it's well shot and well crafted. Um, obviously, they were talented even then, and had honed their skills and pre- prepared nicely. Yeah. The characters are definitely kind of a tough swallow, and I can see and understand somebody saying, you know, that just didn't resonate with me because who who was I supposed to, you know? be cheering for it, and it's not going to work out that way. Yeah. Um, but but it's it's worth seeing, and if you're a Coen Brothers fan, you probably already saw it. If you're a noir fan, you should probably see it. Um, yeah, I, I would check it out, but I can understand if somebody says they hate it. Yeah, yeah. I I still love it, and I would recommend it to anyone, especially if they, they love thrillers, they love the, the hard-boiled genre. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a great addition to that library. Right. All right, Tom, so uh, let's tease our multitude of fans and give them an idea of what we're thinking about next. So for the next movie, uh, we talked about our interest in Brian De Palma in an earlier episode, and we decided to act on that. Yes. A movie that at least I haven't seen, Dressed to Kill, starring Michael Caine, is the next movie on our list to go through. Have, Have you seen it, Matt? I have not seen it. Oh. We're both uh, De Palma fans. I'm a big Michael Caine fan. I think he's certainly very underrated, and uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Mr. D- Caine. So. Yeah, Mr. Caine, Mr. Caine. Yeah, and Brian De Palma, I, I'm always interested in him. I don't know if I would say I'm a big fan, but I'm always extremely interested to see what he does because he always does it very well. Yeah, and uh, I imagine for at least the second episode in a row, the word Hitchcock will be coming up in <laughs> the discussion. I'm gonna go if, out on a limb and predict that. If if we yeah, if we don't bring it up, then we're not doing our job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, 
We'll be mentioning some uh, Hitchcockian references again. We might as well just save that bullet point for the next time. Right. Uh, yeah, and we'll see what we think about uh, one of the Palma's 80s films. Yeah, it's like 80-something. Right. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you, Matt, for joining me. It's been thank another you, great Thomas, podcast. Thank you, Thomas, for hosting and doing all your hard work, and uh, looking forward to the next one. Excellent. All right, bye-bye. See you, everybody.